Well, aren't you thankful that his mercy is more? I expected a little bit better response than that. Let me ask you again in case you weren't ready. Aren't you thankful that his mercy is more? Yeah, I, I, that's more like it. I, I'm thankful to look out and see you there. I was thinking, since we were joking around about masks and things, I, I was thinking about all that. I don't even care. Uh, I, I don't. I, I've traveled now for 24 years, and last year, 2020, I think I was home more than I have been in the other 23. I'll never take you for granted again. And I'm so thankful that each one of you are here, and I'm just excited about what God has been doing and what he's going to do. And if you want to wear a mask, do it anyhow. I look better with a mask on. But it just muffles when I speak, you know. Hey, some of you are in the same boat as me. Don't sit there and laugh. You're the same way. But, and I've determined that there is something positive coming from mask wearing. I, I, I have. Some people's oral hygiene is going to improve. And for all of you who have smelling that, that's what the rest of us have been smelling all these years. So welcome to our world. You don't care. Mark chapter 10. I have enjoyed, we've heard two sermons from Mark, one from Mark 9 and one from Mark 8, and I want to add to that just a little bit tonight. I want to share something with you that um, a year ago May, I was sitting at home during that time when, it was about that time when people were starting to wear masks and we could get back together, but so much time had passed that I had been sitting there feeling sorry for myself. Anybody ever sit and feel sorry for themselves? Are you all too holy for that? I, 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 do, I was, and I do from time to time. And as I was sitting there at my desk, I began to look at this familiar passage of Scripture. It begins in verse 46 and go all the way through verse 52. It's one of those passages that are so familiar that I've used it as illustration in other sermons that I've preached, but I never developed a sermon strictly from there. And as I sat there feeling bad for myself, reading this passage, the Lord began to whisper something or impress something onto my heart that caused me to realize that I had missed it. You know, it's a horrible thing to wake up as a 47-year-old man and realize that you've missed it all this time. But the Lord clarified it for me, and the way I want to begin our time together, we've, we've had two services already in a Bible study, but our time together is I want to share the encouragement that the Lord shared with me in hopes that if you have come here this week discouraged, by the time you leave tonight, you'll be encouraged by his presence. If you've come here tonight feeling as though there is no hope or, or, or hope is escaping you, I hope that your hope will be renewed in him. Oh, aren't you hungry for him to do something? I can't tell it by looking at you. I, I, I'm telling you, I, I just really hope that we will be open to his voice, his word. Verse 46, Mark chapter 10. Now they came to Jericho. As Jesus went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. 
Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered him and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Jesus, we love you tonight. We really do, and we're so thankful for your love for each one of us, that your mercy was greater than anything that could keep us back. And I'm thankful that you chose to show that love in an unimaginable way. And I'd ask tonight that if there be anybody here that's unaware of the love that you have for them, or perhaps maybe doubting that love a bit, would you just slip in beside them? Would you wrap your arm around them and whisper that love in their ears so they can know how much you care? And I am thankful for the services that we've experienced already, for the way that you've been speaking, and I believe there's something that you want to speak to me tonight, something you want to say to us. So I'd ask that you'd have your way, anoint your word, Help us to hear your voice, to see your face, to be captured by your presence and drawn in. And as you continue to speak to us, help us to hear what you're saying. Help us to receive it, yes, but most importantly, help us to respond to your voice in our life, knowing that it's not good enough just to hear. It's not good enough just to receive. I have to respond to your voice in my life because in that response, you do your work. You make me into the man that you long for me to be. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're going to do. We believe there's so much more. We're trusting that you'll do it. Do it tonight. Do it in me. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The gospel according to Mark is often referred to as the gospel of action. It's called that obviously because it's active. Mark, in my opinion, and you can disagree because you have a right to be wrong, but in my opinion, Mark is the best gospel writer. I mean, he tells stories unlike any others. And, and the reason it's called the gospel of action is because obviously it's active. He transitions from scene to scene to scene. He uses language some 43 times immediately, straightway at once, just to bring us from picture to picture to picture. And the goal of those pictures are to present the man named Jesus. He wants us to see him, and he doesn't waste any time. He really begins with an announcement that says what had been laid from the foundation of the world is being fulfilled in a man. God through Christ has invaded humanity, and because he has come, where there was no way, now there's a way. Where there was no hope, now there's a hope. Aren't you thankful tonight that he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves? This is the way Mark would say it. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, it's all about him. Look at Jesus. And then once you hit verse 2 of chapter 1, all the way through somewhere around verse 21 of chapter 8, you enter into what most people would agree is the first general section of Mark's story. And I believe that it's a section that's best referred to as the kingdom goes public because that's what we see happening. You'll remember that it had been foretold by the prophets that one would come and prepare the way. 
Now John the Baptist has done that. He stepped out of the spotlight, and with the way prepared, Jesus takes center stage of humanity and begins to announce his Father's kingdom. And in the announcement of that kingdom, things begin to happen. See, it's in this section that lepers are completely restored. It's in this section that lame people get up on new legs and begin to dance around just a little. Is it all right if we say at Camp Syker that lame people got up on new legs and danced around? Oh, I don't care if you think so or not. If, if I couldn't walk and I all of a sudden could do it, I think I would get up and dance a jig. I don't even know what that is, but my mama always said it, so I'll say it too. Anyhow, you, you know, it's in this section where we see that. It's in this section where empty bellies are filled with small amounts of food. Folks, I'm trying to get you to see exciting things happen when the kingdom goes public. Do you realize even in 2021, exciting things still happen? Lives are still changed. Lifestyles are still challenged when the kingdom goes public. It's an exciting section. You're thrilled. It goes all the way through verse 21 of chapter 8. And then when you jump over to chapter 11, you enter into the second general section of Mark's story. It's a section that I believe is best referred to as the kingdom realized section. Because we see at the beginning of chapter 11 the one place that Jesus should have stayed away from. The one place where his enemies were lying in wait for him was Jerusalem. And yet we watch him as he willingly, get that, he's not dragged kicking and screaming. He's not forced by whips and chains. He willingly on a donkey's colt descends the mount. The father's heart is going to be fulfilled. The son will go and offer himself. And when he offers himself during this Passover season, you realize it's going to be different than any other. Because when his blood is shed, when one drop begins to flow, it starts a river that tears down every barrier that had gone up between God and man. Every wall that had been erected at this point comes crumbling down, and now a door is opened that has never been opened before, and an invitation is heralded through to one and all. Anybody who would dare respond can now walk through the threshold into an entire entirely new category of being. What is that category? Because of what the Son has done, you and I can now become sons and daughters of God. Oh, that's exciting tonight. We're not on the outside anymore. We're not just looking in. We're not something less. We are actually part of the family. Because of Jesus, we are now joint heirs with him. We we are king's kids, and I don't care what your day has been like. That deserves a hearty amen. He has done for us. The kingdom has been realized, not by anything we've done, but because of what he has done. Well, that's exciting. That's the second general section that begins with chapter 11 and goes through to the end. And I can tell you're intelligent people. That's one thing I love about coming to Syker. You guys love the word and you believe the word and you study it. And you're wondering why in the world, Billy, would you preach the entire book of Mark besides what you read to us? Because I wanted to. <laughs> no, I wanted you to see how it all fits together. Because what we have from verse 22 
all the way through to the end of chapter 10 is the natural bridging section from the kingdom going public and the kingdom being realized. It's a section that's very dramatic. The first section actually comes to a close with Jesus confronting his men. Men that he's walked with now for three years. He looks them in the face and he says, how is it, guys, you have eyes and yet you don't see? How is it you have ears and yet you don't hear? Why aren't you getting this? So from verse 22 all the way through what we read tonight, he begins to reveal the kingdom in ways that up until now he has not done. We learn what the nature of this kingdom is all about. And what we really see is that the nature of this kingdom is defined by the nature of its king. I love that. And if you were here this morning, you heard the heart of it all. Our brother Morgan, he preached a a wonderful sermon. This is how Jesus says that if you really want to get in on this thing, if you really want to be my follower, then you must. And hear that language, it's imperative. It wasn't optional for them, it's not optional for us. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So if you want to know what the prerequisites of following Jesus are, we have them right there. Sure, you can say you're a follower, you can wear the label Christian, but unless you are willing to deny and embrace the cross, you have no part of this kingdom. This is a kingdom that was established by the king going by the way of the cross, and if we will be part of it, that's the way we will go as well. And it's really powerful. I don't know. I mean, it's been a while since I've been here. So I just want to say this. I believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. I want you to know that. I believe every story in there is true. I I do. From the beginning all the way through to the end. Therefore, I believe the one who inspired its writing knew what he was doing when he inspired it. In other words, it's put together perfectly. And when you look at this section, bridging the kingdom going public and the kingdom being realized, it's powerful. And we probably talked about this a number of years ago. I'm sure you remember, right? It begins and ends with stories of blindness. Everything's sandwiched by that. It's bookended by that. It begins with the strange story where Jesus spits in that guy's eyes. You do know that's a strange story, right? I don't care how solemn you look. That's a strange, you don't spit in people's eyes. You don't. You can go down to Lens Crafters, I promise you, they won't do that. Okay, you can go to Pearl Vision. I saw one today down in Mount Vernon. You can go there. They won't, I'm pretty sure you can even go to Walmart. No promises there. You don't spit in somebody's eyes. But he does, and when all is said and done, this man is fully sighted. And then it ends with the story of Bartimaeus that we shared together tonight. Why is that significant? Because it shows us what the desire of the king is in each one of our lives. It shows us how we, as kingdom individuals, should be living. Jesus, the king of our kingdom, the spirit, he always meets us in our darkness. You do understand that, right? 
Jesus, the Father, through the Spirit, is the one who always pursues. We say things. We've said it all our lives. I'm glad God knows our heart. I found Jesus, and yet we realize Jesus wasn't lost. We were. And so he meets us there at our point of blindness. But here's the wonderful thing. He refuses to leave us there. He wants to bring us more and more into the full light of the kingdom. In other words, we can have kingdom vision, as you referred to this morning, here and now. We don't wait until the other side of life. We don't wait until we get to heaven for eternity to begin. For the child of God, eternity has started. And we live in a kingdom that has come. That was the announcement. But it's also a kingdom that is coming. But while we wait and while we're here as aliens and strangers in this land, we can see as Jesus see. If not, if he is living through you, you'd better be seeing through his eyes. Well, I'm preaching better than you're responding We can have kingdom vision. That's the whole purpose. But the problem is, in order to have kingdom vision, we have to have a kingdom mindset. That's the struggle. That was the struggle on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, the big mouths, they knew what the kingdom was all about. And for six days, they had been arguing with Jesus, so Jesus took them up there. Incredible. And see, we have to come to the place where we have our own personal transfiguration. We have to be transformed. How? This is what the word says. Be transfigured. Same word. We don't translate it that way. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So in order to have kingdom vision, we have to surrender what we think this kingdom is all about. And we need need to embrace what he says the kingdom is all about. That's the struggle. It's their struggle. It's our struggle. It's the struggle that's playing out in this entire section, really in all of Mark. And it's the struggle that we experience as well. But specifically in the nature of the kingdom section, we see it in a powerful way. Jesus is obviously living a life that's selfless. We know that. And yet we watch as the disciples are self-consumed. Jesus now, not only figuratively, but literally is pointing to the cross. So much so that it's in this section for the first time after over three years of walking with Jesus that Jesus begins to speak in plain language. It's right after Peter says, you're the one that we're looking for. Jesus says, all right, now that you know who I am, let me tell you why I've come. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to my enemies. I will suffer at their hand, bleed, and ultimately die. But that won't be the end. I'll uh, I'll rise again after the third day. It's an incredible picture. Three times. The first is in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And I won't spend any time there because my brother did a wonderful job. Afterwards, after that, we see the clashing of two kingdoms when Peter says, "Um, it's not going to happen that way, Jesus. It's been a while since you've been in Jewish school. I graduated from there, so let me remind you what messiahs do. That's what happens there. That's the start of the struggle. 
And then Jesus calls him Satan, and it's downhill from there, it seems. But anyhow, you know, that's the first occasion. Then when you jump over to chapter 9, verse 31, you have the second occasion. This is after a great failure. Now, remember, the three disciples and Jesus were up on the mount. In the valley of living, chaos has ensued. The remaining nine weren't able to do what needed to be done. Jesus stepped in and did that. Jesus teaches them in a house that the reason why it didn't happen is because this kind can only come out through dependency and desperation, through prayer and fasting, people who are dependent upon me, who are desperate for my presence. And then after that great teaching, they're walking and Jesus is talking about the cross. And you would think that the disciples would be listening. Wouldn't you think? But instead, they're arguing about something else. They're wondering, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who's number one? And I've heard, I, I know there are scholars in this room, so I want to tread lightly, but I've heard scholarly people say, this is a, a, an academic debate about greatness in the kingdom. And I just want to say, that's stupid. It is, it's dumb. Because remember, they're not academics. They're not. They're average, ordinary men. Blue-collar, hard-working men. They're not concerned about an academic discussion. They're concerned about that number one position. They want to know where they fall in the pecking order. They already know who number 12 is. Jesus called Peter Satan. You can't get any lower than that. You see this clashing of two kingdoms. And then the third occasion is in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. The most detailed that Jesus gets with his disciples. And then after Jesus gives this most detailed description, that's when James and John come up to Jesus, and I want you to listen to what they say. Because I love their boldness, but they come up to him and say, Master, teacher, rabbi, we want you to give us whatever we ask of you. Don't you like that? That's what they say. And then Jesus asks them a question. What do you want me to do for you? And they say, well, when you establish your kingdom, let us sit on the left and the right. Jesus is literally on his way to die. And the disciples are concerned about preferred seating, preferential treatment. Is it as obvious to everybody else in here? By the time you hit that final scene, the disciples just don't get it. How many of you are thankful, I am, that the disciples don't seem to get it? I'm thankful for that. They're hard-headed and so am I. That's why hair doesn't grow out of this thing. I'll speak for my brother, too. Never mind. I, uh, all those. It's just a, I'm thankful because there's so many times that I don't get it. And it's after this last discussion that we meet him. Now, Mark tells us that his name is Bartimaeus. And then he goes on to say he's the son of Timaeus. It's the structure of his name, of course. And you realize in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, carries over in the New as well, that names matter. Names have great meaning. Many times they'll speak of character. They might speak of standing. They might even speak of destiny. 
And so it's fun, I think so, you might not, but I, I think it's fun to explore name meanings whenever you run across them in Scripture. And so I began to look at Bartimaeus just a little bit, and there are really two schools of thought as to what Bartimaeus would mean. The first one, I would say, is pretty predictable because it just kind of takes the Hebrew uh, bar, which is son, tome, which is unclean, and if you mash that all together, it comes out as son of unclean, or perhaps the unclean one. And the reason why I say it's predictable is because, look at him. He's blind. And we know the Jewish mindset of sickness and disease and sin, it's all kind of tied together. This is considered a working out, technical term, an expiation of that man's sin. He, he's paying for something. Remember the question the disciples asked of another blind, is this man blind because of sin in his life or sin in his parents' life? It's all interrelated. And so obviously it, you would think that the reason why he's in that condition is God has removed his hand of mercy. This is why he's suffering. That's the exact reason. And the penalty will be met when his suffering is no more. Either the sickness is gone or his life is. But anyhow, he would be the son of unclean or the unclean one. The second one is more interesting to me because it's kind of following the idea of a hybrid name. A deeper school of thought that takes the Aramaic and the Greek bar, which is son, the Greek, I'm Appalachian, so I don't say Greek terms well. I did have four semesters of it. You're not impressed now, but I, I don't say them well, so I'm not going to try to impress you because all you do is laugh at me anyhow. They won't do anything to you, will they? <laughs> uh, but, but, but anyhow, it, it means honorable, and when you mash it all together, the Aramaic and Greek, it would come out as son of honor or the honorable one. The reason why that's interesting to me is because, honestly, we don't know. We don't know because we don't know much of his story. We don't know where he came from. Sure, we know his father's name. We don't know what must have happened to him to leave him in this condition. But all we see now is if his name meant honorable at one point in time. That seems like a cruel joke to me. Honor? Honorable? He's blind. It's already been said, many would believe this is God's act, removing his hand of mercy. He's getting what, and because of his blindness, he's been reduced to becoming a beggar. He is the one who would sit outside the city gate, or if you will, would stand on the exit ramp of every interstate in this country, holding a sign, looking for handouts. But he would sit there at the city gate with the pauper's cup, and as people would pass to and fro, he would cry out for alms, hoping that his fellow man would show compassion upon him, would extend some kindness by putting a coin or maybe a morsel of bread in his cup. He is nothing more than a beggar, a blind. Do you want to know who Bartimaeus is? Do you want to know who we're meeting at the end of chapter 10? This man is nothing more than the dregs of society. He is simply a crumb man on the side of a road, much like the refuse that collects in the gutter, much like the litter. That's what he is. He's the filth of living, the litter of society. He has a story to tell. There's no question about that. The problem is nobody wants to listen. So we watch him on what seemingly just another ordinary day of begging. I'm sure as he stood to his feet from his pallet that morning, he thought that he'd go through his normal routine. 
He knew the times when people would pass to and fro. He was expecting an average day. But what he did not realize is that today would be anything but average. Today would be anything but ordinary. Because today, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And we've already talked about that. We know why he's going there. He's going to make the ultimate sacrifice to satisfy his father's heart. He's going to establish the kingdom. He'll literally offer himself. He'll accept that cross. So on his way, he passes through Jericho, which is a powerful image because you realize nothing happens by accident. I'm really convinced we need to change the way we talk. I, I don't want to get on a soapbox or anything, but we, we so often anymore talk about how lucky we are. Or we talk about how fortunate we are. Can, can I help you? We don't believe in luck. We don't believe in fortune. We believe in a providential sovereign God. And every good and perfect gift, the word says, comes from him. So we need to start speaking like we believe it and call it what it is. We are blessed by him. And we watch that he goes where he was. Bartimaeus. It's where he had been. It's where he would be. This one poor man of one family on one road passing from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's really an unremarkable man. I've tried to paint that image for you. He has no station in life. He's a man of no importance. He's simply suffering with something that he cannot solve on his own. So he sits there that day crying out for alms when off in the distance he begins to hear something that's out of the ordinary. Mark actually refers to it as a great crowd. And I want you to see that image. This is not simply the 12. This is a great crowd. And if you follow the progression, we know where they're heading. And when you hit chapter 11, that's where kids, Passover, you you know, uh, Palm Sunday, when kids walk around the sanctuary waving palm branches, shouting Hosanna. Well, it started before they began to go down that hill. It's already begun. This is why the people would say when they see the enthusiasm, the religious leadership would say, look at how the world is going after him. So this is a great crowd, a loud crowd shouting hosannas. Jesus is going to go overthrow Caesar and establish an earthly throne. It's what they've been waiting for. And Bartimaeus hears the noise. So he begins to question because this is out of the ordinary. This is not lunchtime. This is not going to or from work time. This is not even Black Friday. It's out of the ordinary. So he begins to question what's going on. Someone responds to his inquiry, Jesus is coming. And there's something about the announcement that Jesus is there that causes him to do something that's really unimaginable. We see him now realizing the genesis of this noise, the genesis of this crowd is Jesus himself. Bartimaeus throws his pauper cups aside, and now instead of crying out for alms, he changes his plea. Listen to what he says. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Over and over again. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, you all are good people. You're here at Syker. It's a Friday night. 
That's the kind of people that come. You're good people. Most of you, there's one or two of you that aren't. And if that offends you, it's you. I'll help you. But, but you know, the reason I bring that up is when you hear Bartimaeus using son of David, you realize that's a messianic title from the Old Testament. And yet what's really interesting in Mark's story, Bartimaeus is the only individual that ever uses that language, uses that title for Jesus. And I know how some of you are. You're going to grab your Bible and begin to look through. I will say it's used again in chapter 12, um, verse 35. But when it's used there, it's used by Jesus referring to himself. Bartimaeus is the only one that cries out, Son of, isn't it amazing that in his darkness he sees better than those who are walking in the light? Son of David, have mercy on me. And, and, and the crowd is so predictable. Have you ever noticed that crowds are predictable? There really is a mob mentality. If you've come through 2020 into 2021 and not seen mob mentality, you've had your eyes closed and your TV off. But, but anyhow, I mean, when they hear this beggar, this nobody, about to interrupt the progression that's going on, they cannot, this is what they've been waiting for. And now it's about to happen. They are literally making their way to Jerusalem. They're not going to let, when they hear him threatening to interrupt the procession, they begin to say, hey, why don't you be quiet? Sit there and hush. Jesus is an important man. He's got places to go, people to see. He doesn't have time for the likes of you. Here, here's a coin. Here's some bread just sit there and be quite hush you bum if you don't like that I don't know what to say because knowing the stature of a blind man realizing the nature of rebuke and some of your translations will say they harshly rebuked him sounds pleasant some will say they strictly warned him. That sounds nice. That's probably light to what he received. They probably kicked dirt in his direction. Maybe spit in his face. But the more they tried to quieten him down, the louder he cried out, son of David. And I want to caution you here. Because this is where we often get stuck. We like to talk about the, the persistence of Bartimaeus, and I'm thankful for his persistence. I just don't want us to get caught there. See, because if you get caught there, if that's where you stop, Bartimaeus becomes the hero of the story. And you realize in this story, there's only one hero. It's not Bartimaeus. It's Jesus. But I do want you to see his persistence he rejects the crowd's control. He moves beyond their disdain, and he continues to cry out, please see his amazing, passionate persistence. There is this extreme sense of urgency about him. Jesus is there, and he'll not allow the opportunity to pass him by. He goes for it, son of David. And as he cries, his voice is heard above the roar of the great crowd. That's amazing to me one voice heard over this have you ever been in a great crowd they're not all quiet like you are 
I mean, if you've ever gone to a sporting event and, and you're not the home team and there's not a big delegation of your fellow, what do you call them, fans for the opposing team, if you're crying out to your team trying to cheer them on, probably not going to hear it. Well, um, if you go down to Walmart, you can all relate to that. And, and can I get something? It's ironic to me that at all places, Walmart told people that they had to wear masks to go in. I mean, you can go in your underwear, but you have to wear a mask. Sit there and act like it's not true. I mean, guys, you can wear your gown. And I, I said it like a minute. You know, you can go with your pants down around your knees. Just wear your mask. And they'll stand outside clicking off this thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd just put someone on the other side. Pull those pants up. Put all some real clothes. Come on. Take a, put a, get out of your pajamas. <laughs> but, well. <laughs> some people aren't going to like me, but I just. I crack myself up whether you like it or not. I, I mean, I'm going to have a good time whether you do or not. You can go to Walmart, and if you get separated from your group, your friends or whoever it is, they can holler, Billy, Billy, all you want, but it's likely you might not. Folks, this is incredible. Have you ever felt like your voice was muffled by the crowd? Jesus... Here's his cry, and then look at the response in verse 49. This is what it says. Jesus stood still. I want you to get a hold of that. Think about it. We, we, we talked about it. Jesus is on his way to a terrible cross. You could literally say that the divine drama is crescendoing to its climax. This is why he has come, to fulfill his father's heart. He is on his way. He's approaching Jerusalem, and yet he stops at the cry of one poor man, of one family, on this one road passing from Jericho to Jerusalem, when everybody else would see him as an interruption, the sun stood still for an unremarkable man that had no station in life, really a man of no importance, simply suffering with something that he could not solve on his own. But Jesus stood still. Why? Because where the man could do nothing about it, Jesus could. Jesus stood still. I don't know you, but I sure hope you sense the power in that image. And why you think about that, I want to remind you of this. This is nothing you haven't heard. But sometimes we need a reminder. And if we can't be reminded when we come to a place like this, where can we be reminded? I want you to understand that your cries, yours, 
your cries move the heart of our Savior. I want you to understand that when you cry out to him, he's always there to receive. When your heart is broken and your dreams shattered in a million pieces at your feet, he is always there waiting, longing to begin the process of mending it all together again. When you cry out to him, he will always hear you. Why? Because you matter to him. I want you to know that your cries move his heart. And I'll make you a promise based upon his character and the authority of his word that if you cry to him, you'll never be received as an interruption. Now, maybe we need to think about that one for a minute because have you ever talked to somebody who it just seemed like it hurt them to talk to you? I mean, it's just hard for some people to be friendly. You call them on the phone. They're always busy. No one's that busy. Well, they don't even answer now. Thank goodness for caller ID. Not that one again. You come to something like this or or a denominational church function an assembly or a general church gathering. You've been to those, right? You're talking to people and you're shaking hands and all of a sudden you're talking to somebody, but that person you're talking to is always looking over your shoulder to see if there's someone more important. That's why I don't go to my denominational things. If, if General Assembly, we have it every four years, and it's usually in Indianapolis, and I tell people, and I'll tell you, if there are that many Nazarenes in Indianapolis, I'm going to Destin. They are a tough crowd. You know what I'm talking about. Some people don't have time for anybody else. Not so with him. I want you to see it. You are never an interruption to him. No matter how unremarkable you may feel, no matter what your station in life may be, Jesus cares for you. Oh, I I want you to soak in that because we've become so familiar with that language, but do you understand what that means? You matter. He cares. When you feel like there isn't anybody that you can turn to, when it feels like everybody has just up and walked away, he cares for you. Jesus stood still. Then he says, bring that guy to me. We're not going to spend any time here, but I want you to see the image. They walk over to Bartimaeus, and this is funny to me. You know the crowd before saying, hey, why don't you be quiet? Now they walk over and they say, cheer up. (laughs) Take heart. Be of good cheer. I think in my mind, well, maybe if you weren't spitting on him. He's calling for you. Bartimaeus casts aside his beggar's cloak stood to his feet, 
I believe, ran in his darkness to Jesus. And then Jesus asks a familiar question. Listen to what he says. What do you want me to do for you? It's a familiar question. What do you want me to do? And it's not familiar because that's how he always deals with the infirmed. It's not familiar because that's the way he always deals with blind people. You remember we looked at one time when Jesus spit in the guy's eyes. Didn't say that then. I could take you and show you two more men from Matthew's account. Remember, Mark's our first gospel. Matthew and Luke thought to use him. So Matthew expanded on it some. And we watch after he heals Jairus' daughter. He's going to his next place, probably going to have coffee, making his way down the road. And these blind men are following. Matthew says he's there using this same, son of David, have mercy. And Jesus keeps walking. Isn't that an interesting picture? Because we always say Jesus always stops when someone, but not here. The language proves it out. And besides that, if you follow the story, he goes into a house. It wasn't the blind man's house, and that's where they follow him. And that's when Jesus says to him, do you believe I'm able to do this? It's not the way he deals with blind. It's not the way that he deals with sick people. It's a familiar question because this is the same question that he had just asked James and John. Just did. They come and say, Master, teacher, we want you to give us whatever we ask. Jesus what do you want me to do for you? Bring that blind man to me. What do you want me to do for you? Same question. The only difference is James and John got it wrong. Bartimaeus gets it right. Could it be when you've been rejected by so many? Could it be that when you've gone so low, your concern isn't climbing all the way to the top? Could, could it just be, perhaps, Bartimaeus knew what he needed? I want to see. And then Jesus, I love the way Jesus, don't you love Jesus? Oh, I'm going to help you out. That would have been the perfect place for an amen. amen. Just in case you're wondering, amening 101, if someone asks you if you love Jesus, amen. I'm going to give you another chance. You guys are cracking me up tonight. Don't you love Jesus? Amen. Some of you are lying, but otherwise, you, you know. Oh, it's kind of. I want to see, Jesus says. He's funny to me. All right. See. <laughs> it's just that simple. All right. See, wait a minute, Jesus. There's no pill for this. There's no eye drop. There's no prescription that can even help him see a bit. But Jesus just says, see. And when the last syllable flipped from his tongue, the veil of darkness is lifted. And the first thing that Bartimaeus sees is the smiling face of Jesus Christ, the one who stood still at his cry. So Jesus says, get out of here. Get on out of here. If you're in South Carolina, get you on out of here. Wouldn't you love to hear Jesus say something? Go, go on, go your way. But you know what? 
Bartimaeus does? He follows Jesus. See, right, right, maybe that's just a picture of discipleship. When we know what he's done for us, we shouldn't have to be persuaded. Hey, you need to do, you, you know, maybe we just realize what he's done and there's something about the love that we have for the one that's done something so great in our lives that we just naturally follow. Because we realized where we were and now because of who he is, because his mercy was greater, now we know that there's, well, it's an incredible picture. And as I was sitting there in May, feeling sorry for myself, I began to realize that I'm Bartimaeus. We're Bartimaeus. I can include you in this. We are all one person from one family on this one road of life that we've been given. We are Bartimaeus. We're unremarkable. Really, we are. And I don't mean to offend anybody. I know some of you feel pretty remarkable. What I'm trying to say is, is that most of our lives won't be recorded in history books. I preached my mother's funeral April 9th, and standing there at the graveside, after the graveside service, looking around at the different headstones, I began to realize, you know, even after a generation or so in our own families, we don't remember our, our, our family members' first names. We're, we're, we're unremarkable. We have no station in life, no real station to speak of. And I know some of our stations are greater than others, so let me change it to no lasting station. To say. I don't care what you have, who you think. It's not going to last. It will not remain. We're all on this one road of life that we've been given, simply suffering or having suffered with something that we cannot solve on our own. We are Bartimaeus. Why? Because we need a Savior. We need a Messiah. And I don't know what you've come to camp this year carrying. I don't know what COVID has done to you. I don't know what's happening in your world, in the corner that you live in. I have no idea, but whatever it may be, I want you to hear the news. Cheer up! Take heart! He's calling for you. And in him you will find what you've been looking for, yes, but you will find exactly what you need. It's incredible. Bartimaeus is the final miracle story in Mark's gospel. Not discounting the resurrection, but the last physical healing in Mark's gospel. And it happened on a day that Jesus was passing through Jericho and we know, because we're on this side, never to pass that way physically again. He was going to the cross. Had Bartimaeus not responded, he'd never have another chance. And I know by his spirit tonight that Jesus is passing by. There isn't any question. He has exactly what we need. The only thing is, how will you respond? Remember, he cares for you. And you'll never be an interruption to him. In fact, if you would cry out, have mercy, I dare say that the sun would stand still for you. So Jesus tonight, 
You know each one of us. Where we've been, where we are, what we need. And you are able to do in our lives what needs to be done. And my prayer tonight would be, as our brother said last night, that we would listen to you. There are so many voices that surround us every day. Voices of inadequacy, voices of failure, voices of need, whatever it is. And I pray that we would hear you. And in your voice, sense the worth that you see in each of us and experience the touch that only you can bring. Be with us tonight. Speak to us the word that needs spoken. Help us to believe it and respond. And be changed by your presence. I'm going to invite you, please, if you're able, all over the tabernacle to stand to your feet. I'll simply say this. You've been patient with me, so let me just... I believe whenever the word of God is spoken, it demands a response. It's not whether or not we respond, we will respond. And based upon that response, we'll either be closer or a little bit farther from where we need to be. The only choice we don't have is being the same. You realize that because we've been here in his presence under his word. None of us will ever be the same. There are altars here. There's no pressure on this. None whatsoever. What matters to me is that you respond. You can respond there in your seat. But there's something beautiful about an altar. Maybe tonight you just want to step out and come out down and say, have mercy on me. Maybe there are things you need to deal with with him. I, I wouldn't presume to know. All I know is that we should respond. So as we are led in song, before our brother leads us in a closing prayer, why don't you come? You respond, okay? Okay.